Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Great guest today. It's L.A. comedian and writer Rebecca Rush. Excited to have her. First, though, I have a couple things to mention. A while back, late 2019, I shot something that is now out. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's a kids game show called The Big Fib, and it's hosted by Yvette Nicole Brown, who is amazing. She's an amazing person. She's been in a ton of stuff. You've seen her, uh, maybe most notably as Shirley from Community. And uh, it was great meeting her in person. Um, and uh, it was a fun little thing. It's a kid show. If you have kids, check it out. I'm in episode 22. Also, this Saturday at 10 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to do an interview on Instagram live with my old friend Andy Ryder. And you can check that out by following him on Instagram at Andy Ryder again. And also follow me at Jason Picks. So that's this Saturday, the 6th, at 10 p.m. Eastern. And finally, we had a new person join the fight for their itis. Barak Ziv supported our podcast and newsletter efforts. So big thanks to him. You can support, too. You can go to thereitispod.com to find out support information. Okay, on with today's show, I spoke to comedian Rebecca Rush about her move from the East Coast to the West Coast starting out in comedy, and she shared some truths about sobriety that were very interesting. It's a really thoughtful and also fun talk. So here's my chat with Rebecca Rush. I'm actually from Connecticut. That's where I started comedy. And then after like three years or so, I moved to New York. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Where in Connecticut were you? Central and the shoreline. Okay. Um, I've only been to uh, a couple of spots in in uh, Connecticut. I'm not uh, too too familiar with it <laughs> with the lay of the land. I don't have the lay of the land there. I don't guess. First place I ever performed was Joker's Wild Comedy Club in New Haven. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's where I've been. Is New Haven? I was uh, very drunk. I brought a bunch of my work friends, and I heckled the comics before me because I didn't know any better and then i got on stage and read a list of tweets um (laughs) so how did that go i mean i thought it went great i it didn't go great after that for a while yeah it took me like a year to even try because i had written a blog when i lived in miami that was like i knew some things were funny and I got some like blog awards and then I, uh, I moved back, I got divorced and moved back to Connecticut mm-hmm. and I started gaining a Twitter following. Cause like it was, Twitter was so small then and everyone was really into these like joke formats, like, and you could just kind of jump on that. Like my spirit animal is a 
nail polish and you know what I mean? And like it, <laughs> then we had this thing called fave star, which is like a third party app to favorite mm-hmm. things. Cause Twitter didn't have a like button then. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in that and my follower count started going up and I, I kind of thought I was, cause I kind of learned how to write a joke from Twitter and I became friends with all these people. And we were like on Twitter and Tumblr and I'm going to a meetup in New York with these people, some of whom I'm still friends with. I got so drunk, I got kicked out of the bar. But before that happened, I met a woman who said she was a stand-up comic. She wasn't really, but for the purposes of this story, she was enough. And she was like, well, do you write jokes? Like, And I, I wrote this five-minute set and like sent it to her, and she just like changed everything to a dick joke. But... <laughs> It took me like a year to, people would just like tell me here and there, because I I like to tell stories like, oh, you should do comedy. And, and it took me a year. I actually, I got, I blacked out at that event and uh, I was sharing a suite with a bunch of other Twitter people. And I don't remember what happened, but they walked in on me, like wandering around naked being like, I'm not that kind of girl, but I was. And (laughs) And that's uh, and that's how I I started. I was gonna turn thirty, and I was like, I better try comedy now because I'm thirty, and that made sense to me. You know, I was afraid I would like never do it. Wow. Yeah. Try. So. But because of, like Twitter, I, I had this weird. I was so awkward on stage, but I kind of knew how to write, and I'd been a writer, so I had this weird like, I I thought I. I thought I was like, well, now that I turned 30, like any moment I was going to wake up and be like super old. So I had this like pressure, like I better make it really, really fast. I like just didn't understand anything. Like if I bombed, it was the crowd's fault. I mean, I, I performed one of my first times in new London where I lived It's like art town and it was somebody's birthday and the crowd, like looking back was just standing there wanting to laugh and I was so drunk and I was so mad when I got off stage that I took a shot and then smashed it in the, this cake that was like the guy's birthday cake that the party was for, who was such a nice guy. <laughs> but that's kind of just, you know, how I was at the beginning of comedy. Mm. You know, it was not a joy. I was not a joy to be around, you know. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned that you were writing uh, before that. So that was your career at that, you know prior to this that was what you were doing well I worked for a website and I'd worked briefly for a paper and like I was doing some freelance stuff but it wasn't like a full-time live on my own without you know my ex-husband or my mom helping me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of career it was just something I'd always done and always wanted to do and was just kind of afraid to really do you know, in like mm. a full, complete way. Well, you've done a ton. Uh, you've written a ton. Like you've you've had work in a lot of different publications. And there's one that I'm interested in because you're a regular contributor at it. It's The Fix. And is The Fix the website that's for, it sort of covers addiction? Yeah, I was a regular contributor at The Fix for several years, but they lost budgeting and they weren't no longer able to pay. So I switched over to work at health, which is where I regularly contribute now, but it's similar. They pay better than the fix, but the fix was the first place I started writing for, uh, about addiction, recovery and mental health. I see. 
And is I so that's something that you have a lot of experience in, or is it something that you have um, uh, sort of training in discussing? I've been sober for over two years, and I've been trying to get sober for twelve years. So mm-hmm. I have just a lot of personal experience. Okay. Okay. Wow, that's great. Well, good on you. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, so you've been writing for publications like that for quite some time? Uh, I'd say maybe I've been freelancing steadily for like about four years now and Mm. every year I'm making more off of it and I'm writing more regularly and I've got more coming out. And you mentioned that when you started writing, it was because you liked it and it was something you knew you wanted to do. And so you kept doing it with comedy. Was there a, different spark there? Or is it kind of the same thing? Like it's, you like doing it. So you want to keep doing it. Cause you, I feel like in both realms, you're doing a lot. You're making a lot of ground. Well, I was, I've always just liked to write. It was an escape reading and writing. And the only place I really found, like I could relate to anybody with the people that I found in books. And I always wanted to give that back to the world. But I was a poet in college, and I mean, I published poetry, and that was really what I wanted to do, and was upset and confused that there was no, like, you know, jobs for poets, really. I mean, but what I found in comedy, it was a very much the same skill set as poetry, like, trying to write a whole book, like, I've got a book of essays pretty much finished, and that makes sense to me. I can focus on an essay, but the whole, like, and I will eventually, but the idea of writing, you know, several hundred pages that one solid piece is just so overwhelming. But with poetry and comedy, it's like you're honing this small little chunk. And then with comedy, you can take it right out into the world and get feedback right away, you know, kind of like you can with social media. And I found that very just felt really good. Like right before I started doing comedy, I started singing karaoke and I always liked to write. And then I'm like, Oh, I really like fucking karaoke. And then comedy (laughs) just seemed to be like that marriage of like, I'm performing and people are looking at me, but I'm saying my own words and I'm getting a reaction. And it just felt like what I was always looking for. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I know what you mean. Um, it sort of reminds me of what John Stewart said he felt about finding comedy. He said that it felt like his, uh, like this power cord found its socket. Uh, he worded it differently, but that was basically what he was saying. Like it was the thing that gave him electricity or something. And uh, it was like a, I guess, a sort of dawning moment for him. Yeah. And like at first, I just. I kept like, I was listening to all these female comics on repeat. I I felt like I had to like catch up or something for starting late. And I would go to the clubs and see them. And I felt like they were like these fairy godmother moments where they would give me, I'd be like, I met Natasha Leggero and I was like, hi, great set. I keep bombing, please. What do I do? And she was like, well, you need to figure out what's funny about you. And, and at first, like you spend your life, if you have the comic kind of personality, just feeling really separate and wanting to like get back at everybody else by saying what's wrong with them. Mm. But like, once you're there, you realize like, you're the freak, like you're the thing that's weird. You're the thing that doesn't fit in. Mm -hmm. And so once I could start, like I was on stage once 
And I was trying to like make fun of my friend who was fat. Like, I mean, it was just, I listened to too much Amy Schumer and I thought like that just these horrible things that I would say that I was, you know, like maybe it had like a, a twist or something. So I was like, haha, it's so good. And uh, I forgot everything I was going to say. And I just started talking about like, I was on food stamps at the time. And I was like, I think I'm like the first Jew on food stamps. And then I started talking about how my sister like kept blocking me on Facebook. And, and it was just so honest. And like people were laughing Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I ever felt like myself. And like my first few months, like every set I had, I'd, I'd record it and I'd like make someone listen to it that didn't want to. I'd be like, you have to listen to my set. And like nobody cared. But this was the first time and, and my sets were terrible. But this was the first time ever that I like I felt so good after I didn't need anybody. Like I didn't mm-hmm. even need to listen to the set. Like it was the most pure high I'd ever experienced in life. And then, you know, and then you just keep chasing that. And, but once I started to, to make fun of myself and to look at that, like through that, you earn the right to make fun of other people. Like if I hear somebody Mm. just make fun of others and like, well, what about you? Like, Mm -hmm. I will trust you. If you, if you let me know that, you know, what's wrong with you, then I'm going to trust what you say is wrong with other people. You know, that's a good point. It's an extremely common thing in comedy, you know, in stand-up. People are making fun of themselves, but it's not talked about <laughs> as uh, as much, you know. Uh, it's, And I think it should be, because that is kind of when you start really getting somewhere, uh, as far as the type of material that you're creating, uh, when you actually start saying something, it is when you are talking about yourself. What rooms did you like when you were here? Uh, when I first got there, I just tried really hard to fit in in like the pine box mic scene and just didn't. Oh, I just like wanted to be friends with these people so badly and I just couldn't make it happen. Um, but I mean, I, I did a lot of Brooklyn stuff at first and then I took some time off and then. I kind of got into roast battle and I was living in Manhattan. So I was just doing a lot more work in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You always work the road. Yeah. Even like, I mean, in my very first years, like I would go to California and like, you know, Mike's whatever shows I could just kind of show up couch surfed my way through like Twitter. And I was so insane and on unemployment and so I would, but I would just any, I would go to these places just to be like, well, I haven't done comedy here and built up these relationships. And then I did a lot of club work at the Hartford Funny Bone in my last two years uh, in New York. And and then Philly and Maine and New Hampshire and California, Vegas, Arizona, Texas, wow. just Florida, Louisiana. Like I would just go and then, you know, you go and you build these relationships or you yeah. just ask like, hey, there's always some comic from wherever you're going that lives in New York that knows right. Booker there. <laughs> yeah. So I like that. I went to Chicago a lot before me the Laugh Factory. I had fun there. But what was that like deciding to just go hit the road and, and try to build that uh base? I mean, it worked out really well for me because like I could go and get drunk with people that didn't know I had a problem 
And, you know, I could get along. I, I get along with people now, which is weird. Um, weird for me. But, you know, I could get along with people for that long. Mm-hmm. for the amount of time I was on the road. And so I could like maintain these relationships. Whereas I was just like really lost and didn't know how to connect with people and would kind of bring all my baggage into like my home scene, you know, and just felt like everybody didn't like me or just, it was just like all this crap in my own head that I needed to work through mm-hmm. kind of prevented me from, really being like a part of the scene in a, in a deeper way, you know, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time at the grizzly pair in my last few years because I felt like accepted there, mm-hmm. you know, like I, and it also was a point two month point two mile walk from my apartment. But, but I started to get like more comfortable because like the worst thing kind of happened in 2017 and after that I had to like reevaluate and rebuild everything mm-hmm. um, you know. is going I mean obviously a lot of stand-up it's happening in bars and clubs and being uh, in the scene uh, just the culture of of hanging out with the comics after a show has so much uh, drugs and alcohol involved as someone who is sober is is there a challenge there and being in that scene i mean there was and i would use that as an excuse to like have a bad set at the pine box open mic and i drink and i hadn't maybe hadn't drank in months like mm-hmm. and i just kept relapsing in new york um i'd go to like the grizzly pear mic on sunday morning and i'd see the host had a drink and i'd go to the bartender who I had begged to never serve me and then talk him out of what I had previously talked him into. And then there's some guy selling garbage Coke, you know, on the street and forget it. Um, when I moved to LA, I, I kind of put stand up on the back burner, which was weird because I ended up getting like all these gigs that year, but I wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like, I wasn't trying mm-hmm. so hard to. And then I had, I booked this tour where I was going to headline two comedy clubs for the first time. And they weren't huge clubs. And I don't know if they'll even be here anymore after this. Right. But um, I had this whole tour set up for March because I had gotten a year in December. And I was like, all right, I'm like ready to do this now. And then, you know, the universe was like, well, maybe pivot and focus on your writing. And so that's what I've done. And I've written. God, I've written more articles. I've made more money writing this year than probably in the past five years combined. Oh, and it's wow. still not like a ton, but you know, it's a it's the right direction. That's awesome. How long have you been out there? I've been here a little over two years. Okay. I haven't had a drink since I moved here. Good. And that first year was the year that you had stand up on the back burner? Yeah, pretty much. I just built my whole life around sobriety. So like I know, like, say if I wanted to relapse and I wanted Coke, I'd still probably call a comedian that I know from Roast Battle, but I don't have, like, friends that drink and use here. You know, my friends are people that are sober, and I have... It's so weird to me to be like, people respect me because I've done well at Roast Battles or they've seen me perform, or, like, I have good relationships with people, but I finally, like understand that they're work friends and then when somebody does become more than that like cool it's a bonus but I'm not going into it like 
I don't need that from people anymore because I have my own back. And, Mm -hmm. you know, paradoxically, when you don't need something from people anymore, you get it. So, yeah, you know, I had to make it work out here. I don't have another coast to move to. (laughs) People really didn't like me in New York and not all of them because that's not that important. But, you know, one week I'd be like talking about being sober and the next week I... I ran this mic at Precious Metals and I got drunk and yelled at everyone because I thought they all hated me. And it's like, who cares? You go to mics where you don't like the host. Like, it's not about me. Right. But it was about me in my head. And I yelled at them all and I canceled the mic at like the opening. And I then I like just quit the mic, like canceled it, quit, walked off stage. And everyone's just like staring. They're just they're thinking about what they came Maybe it's, a, I don't know, maybe that mic's walking distance to them. It's a good, right. a good time for them. Like, but for me at the time, like so deep in my alcoholism, like it just was all about me and how they didn't like me. And it's just how I was. Yeah. And that's obviously changed now, but you're not uh, like, I guess this last year, since the first year you took a back seat to uh, stand up. But this past year, uh, there hasn't been as many opportunities to do stand-up, I guess, since the pandemic is there. No, I did um, a couple outdoor shows. I started my I started my show in September. So I guess I didn't really wait a full year to like kind of start going deeper into comedy once I got sober. Mm-hmm. But I started a vulnerability-themed show that's really, really fun, September of 2019. And then the last... One was March 2nd um, of 2020, and then I started it on Zoom, and I ran it on Zoom until, like, July, and I'm going to start it back up March 2nd. Oh, great. Yeah, so that was the next thing I was actually going to talk to you about. So this show, Vulnerability, uh, is it kind of a roast show, or, like, can you can you talk about that? Yeah, totally. So it's... It's based off the idea that, like, I mean, every story I've ever told on stage was first, like, oh, my God, I couldn't share that. Like, could I possibly say that? And those have been become my best stories and also just the ones that feel the best to be like, it's okay that I said that. And, like, I believe that being that open and being that vulnerable empowers other people. Because, like, once you say something out loud, it loses so much of its power to hurt you. And also, like, it's transformative, right? Like, people laugh at stuff. We laugh at stuff together. And then it changes the muscle memory. So vulnerability, I ask all the comics on the show to, to say at least one thing during their set that makes them feel vulnerable. I had a guy like talk about trying to kill himself when he was seven. Like, and, you know, suicide can be funny if it's the person who is talking about it themselves. You're not like making fun of somebody else. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he was seven years old. That was funny. But he'd never talked about that before. And then I'll have the audience write down things. And on Zoom, they just send them to me in the chat, things that make them feel vulnerable. I anonymously pass those out to the comics and they'll each have a couple. And like, well, they have a lull in their set or they'll do whatever they want. Like they can do whatever regular jokes they want to. I don't care how, like what they do with it. I had somebody once like read their seventh grade journal. Like that was super fun. And it's always exciting to see what the comics do with the directive. And they can roast that thing that's on the piece of paper that the audience member wrote down. And then the audience member gets their own jokes about their vulnerabilities. And yet they're not put on the spot 
that people are like, they know we're all laughing at their thing, but not at them because nobody's like, oh, it's you, Michael. You said you hate how low your balls are. You know, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I like that part of it too, that they, because the audience members don't come to be exposed in the same way that we come to be exposed, right? Mm-hmm. But it still gives them a little levity around whatever they said. And how are you enjoying doing it on Zoom? Is it something that you think translates well? I mean, for that show specifically, it works. Some shows work and it's just like, it's what we have, you know? Right. Um, I haven't done a ton of Zoom shows and sometimes I got heckled by this lady, Dr. Nancy, in the chat of the Zoom show, like really, really bad. And I got so mad because I, I was trying to work on something about how like, I discovered I had OCD like almost two years into sobriety. And it was just like this weird kind of OCD where I think, I think like I'm going to do something terrible. Like when I lived in New York, I used to think I'd throw myself in front of the train, but I just figured like everybody in New York thinks that, but actually they don't. Um, And so like this intrusive thought OCD where I'll go through emotionally the whole thing. Like, and I'm trying to talk about how sometimes when I go on long drives, I think I'm going to throw my dog out of the car. Mm -hmm. And that's, as vulnerable as I get. Right. And I I don't even have really good jokes about it yet. I've just written it that afternoon. And this lady, Dr. Nancy is just reaming me in the chat. Like she's like, you belong in the psych ward. And it's like, bitch, I've been twice. If you just shut up and listen. Wait, she was a doctor saying that. I don't know if she's a real doctor because it's zoom. You know what I mean? She could be one. She doesn't have her camera on that. I allowed to get to me. uh, Cause like in person, you let a heckler piss off the whole crowd and then you come for them and you can feel that shared energy in the room. But I don't even know if people saw what she was saying in the chat. So it just looks like I'm yelling, oh. like yelling at like yeah. an invisible person while I'm talking about my mental illness. I'm kind of mad at this lady though. <laughs> I, I, she went on my resentment inventory for sure. Oh gosh. I, I uh, her I'm in the program, of... thankfully also a comedian. So I was like, mm-hmm. do I owe this person an amends? Like that's how we do it in program. And she was like, no, fuck them. I'm still mad at a heckler from 30 years ago. She's <laughs> like, you don't owe them an apology. <laughs> they get what they get. You know, once they heckle, they get what they get. You know, also if she's a doctor, I mean, do no harm. And she's, she's trying to do harm with those sort of statements. People on zoom sometimes like, will feel even more comfortable like whether they're smoking weed and it's like we get it you're super cool like but it's like can you not like can you turn off your camera or like i don't know maybe like let an hour go by without smoking weed <laughs> right uh, or they'll be like you know they would sit at a show and pay attention but because they're on zoom they're just sitting there in the chat and they've got stuff to say it's weird but yeah. i think that's up to the host um i think it's up to the host to control that. Like you can disable the chat, just FYI hosts. If you have somebody <laughs> blowing up the chat, it's annoying and distracting and none of us are on top of our game right now. So, you know, I was, I was just like, we're trying to play the violin on the Titanic, you know, so maybe <laughs> yeah. chat so we can <laughs> try to hack that out. You mentioned something a little while ago about making people who didn't want to, watch your set or listen to your set, listen to a recording of a set, which I think is a really great idea because uh, if you're engaging someone who's like, I'm busy, I can't do this right now, but uh, it's engaging them, then that must mean it was a pretty good joke or a pretty good set. 
I mean, whether they, it's not like it would, wouldn't be their idea. I'd be like, can you please listen to this for me? Right. And you know, I, it's intrusive and I wouldn't do that to anyone now. Oh, okay. Well, I thought it was this brilliant idea of, of honing you, <laughs> honing yourself. Finding uh, what works and what doesn't work. If you can get someone who uh, isn't wanting to listen to something to pay attention, then you know what's working. But you know, like we have. I mean, now I have I have some friends that aren't comics but love comedy, and like if I have something new that I've recorded, like I'll send it to them because Mm -hmm. I know they want to hear it. Mm -hmm. I brought it up because. In, in this Zoom age, and, and I don't know if you record your Zoom shows, but if you do, have you rewatched that? And has it helped, helped like recording a set from stage uh, used to help when we were doing shows live? If I ever recorded a Zoom show, I would record it on my phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't record my Zoom shows. I feel like that just not even though like yeah i have friends in in london and shit who like it's the middle of the night for them and they're like are you live streaming it like no i want the audience in the fucking zoom room i want them if they can manage their background noise to have their to be unmuted so we can hear the laughter and i don't think that show should live anywhere because that way it keeps it closer to live comedy yeah that makes a lot of sense because when the, we do shows in back rooms of bars, it's just a, it's for the people who are there. Not everyone gets to see so, that. It is so the worst when you go to do a Zoom show and you, the host is like, you have the lineup and you're last. And the host is like, the show's about to start. Where are you? And it's like, oh, no, like I didn't sign up to be here for two hours, like the whole audience is watching live stream. I don't see any on now. Now me as a comedian have to laugh or engage. Like now I have a separate job that I didn't sign up for. Yeah, right. Like it should be up to me if I want to watch other comedians or not. Mm-hmm. And like that feeling like it's just only you and the other comedians in the zoom room is like, you feel like you're at a booked open mic that <laughs> yeah. you didn't sign up for, you know, and it just feels like this pressure, like like when you do a bar show where there's nobody but the comics there and now you have to fucking stay mm-hmm. or else you're an asshole. I just don't like that kind of pressure. <laughs> I totally get that. I get like instantly resentful. I was like, oh, okay, I see. Like you now my job now I have this job that I'm, you know, have to do. And like <laughs> Uh, also, comics are the worst uh, audience. I mean, when I'm at a set, if, if I'm at a room doing a set, uh, comics are just looking at their own notes and trying to figure out what they're going to do. You know, they're not really paying attention. Uh, I don't know why they would pay more attention now uh, on Zoom. They do because their face is like being recorded, <laughs> you know, like their face is being well, live streamed. So they're just sitting there all like politely like her, her, her. And we're oh, like, wow, they no. turn off the video. Sometimes people will turn off their video like, I'll turn off my video and then I feel fucked up about it. Mm. Um, I don't think you, you know. I, I feel I feel all the it's, it's really complicated. This the I, I'm resentful and then I feel like I'm not doing a good enough job and then I feel like I'm looking at these other comics and they seem to not have the same 
issues that I do about it and they're all being polite and I'm like, well, you know what? I just feel like it's wrong to give people false feedback. Then I also feel like I'm supposed to laugh. And then I'm like, why aren't these people funny? Or sometimes I'm like, thank fucking God this person's funny. But also I'm just, I'm sitting at a chair in my fucking computer, like, you know, and then the worst thing is like in the before, like I could be like, Oh, I got to get to another show. But now it's like, they know <laughs> like they, I'm here. Like I, I got to get to another season of Dexter. Like I just, I can't sit still. Right. And, you know, right. I used to smoke cigarettes so I could like go out, I'm going to go smoke. And now I vape. I do it everywhere. I do it on planes. Like I can't, it isn't, it's not a good, I, I can't escape with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's it's harder to have that same, the exact same culture in live settings. Oh, but I did. Uh, I did go do a weekend in Arizona, a feature weekend at I don't House of Comedy, mm-hmm. and I did it right after I had COVID. So I had, oh, COVID, had COVID in May. I did. Uh, I had COVID in May. It? I think it's from getting fucking illegal eyelashes in the valley, um, mm-hmm. you know, because I deserve that. And <laughs> and uh, and then my friend got it too. I mean, we were like, on a, we weren't, we don't live together, but neither of us had roommates, so we're like, we'll just hang out, and if we get it, we'll be okay, hopefully. And we just hung out with each other, and then I got my lashes done, and then we got sick. So we're like, I think that's probably how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was when we were like totally shut down. I went to see this lady. She did a terrible job and then she canceled the next appointment. And I was like, oh, cause you're sick, right? Cause you're sick. Um, but I was in the, I was in the antibody period, but I still felt, I mean, nobody was there to see me. They were just there to see the headliner, right? They're not there to see the feature, but I felt fucked up being part of what could potentially be a spreading event. You know, people in it, and I went to Arizona and there's like, they're not even, I went into gas station. The gas station clerk is not even wearing a mask. There's no glass partition or plastic partition. Like there's no gloves. Like, and this is in August and they didn't even start wearing masks there until like the fall, like at all. Like it just was very much like ain't no laws when you're drinking claws, Arizona. Like, you know, <laughs> take you and on country. The pandemic isn't real, mm. blah, blah, blah. And these people would just give the wait staff such a hard time. They would take their mask off. The second they had a drink in front of them, they were allowed to take their mask off. Yeah. So they're not putting the mask. And then they don't bother putting it back on when they leave. Mm. And, you know, the only night they really seemed socially distanced was when the crowd wasn't very full. But, like, on Saturday night, it looked pretty full. And then, like, Rob Schneider showed up and got on stage and complained about COVID and how he doesn't want to wear his mask over his nose. And they were just like, Oh my God, he's been on the movies. Oh wow. And it, it was just the, yeah, I saw that the he general manager quit in the middle of the weekend mm-hmm. and like left with the, it was such a fuck show. I mean, I love that. I did miss like how bad it, it was just something so comforting about being in a poorly run comedy club for a weekend and just watching, <laughs> you know, like, the general manager's the cook right now. And then he walks out in the middle of the early show on Saturday night. And there's like this mayhem going on. Now the waitress is the cook and everything is completely insane. And I did enjoy that. But then I felt like, you know, just watching like all of a sudden, like 
I'd be talking on stage and I would just be like really hyper aware of like, I'm like, Oh, look at my spit fly. Mm -hmm. Like there, wow. It went like 12 feet. Um, <laughs> you just, yeah. like, and you never notice that unless you're watching comedy and you're like, damn, sometimes you can see it in the lights. But when well, we do comedy spit, really, that shit really, these tiny little droplets just be just no, the, the stuff we're there. noticing now and thinking about, cause I'm, if I'm watching a movie, or a TV show, and there's people in tight spaces, and they're <laughs> they're hugging, or they're talking nose to nose, and I'm just like, what? What are they doing? Oh, right, right. This was from 2007. Um, but this is not 2007, you know. Right that now, it's not. Thing. Yeah, and now, so yeah. I mean, we're we're just really hyper focused on what what uh, what all's going on, and you know, it, it's. I do think there has to be a way to safely have. Uh, shows and do uh have there be restaurants that are open but so many people are just not trying at all to be safe that it makes it hard to safely do anything you know i mean if you have a restaurant that's open if everyone were only putting their mask down or taking their mask off when they're taking a sip or a bite and then otherwise they're putting the mask back on yeah maybe that would be safe but People are saying, like, this restaurant's open. I'm just not going to wear a mask for an hour and a half while I'm sitting inside uh, within three, six, uh, three feet of somebody in some cases. Yeah, I mean, we just we fucked it up and we can't undo it now. Like other countries are fine because they we could have just had a real lockdown and we couldn't fucking wear a piece of cloth to save other people's lives. And now we're just in this situation, which no other country is in as bad a situation as we are because we did it to ourselves because we're so individualistic here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like everything will one day come back, but I don't know. It's cold out outdoor shows. I think like that's cool. But even then, you know, it's just I, what I'm seeing people do that I think is the most healthy response is to focus on what they can do. We're all artists, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this girlfriend, I know she's like finding out what color she likes and she's making miniature things and painting and people are like writing poetry or, you know, my I have a friend who's a national headliner. He's like, I'm writing fucking plays not even screenplays just plays stage plays oh wow and, um i have been letting events will come into my life and i'll be like oh i normally would write about that and maybe i'll talk about it a whole bunch and then and then my um my sponsor who's also a comic was like well i'm just writing those things down so i have a few zoom shows coming up and i feel like every zoom show now is like well i might as well try something brand new and uh so I need to set aside, so I do a lot. I used to do a lot of my writing, kind of like sitting, waiting to go up. And that's not really a thing anymore. So I have to like, and not always, but I would take time so rarely to just sit down and write comedy and it would make such a huge impact, such a huge positive impact to my work. So I'd be like, well, let's not do that again for months. Um, <laughs> but I have, I, have I have some ideas that I'm like, why don't we just, just do that, just write. Um, write out those ideas and then try them. I feel like at this point, like I don't, 
I don't care. Like I'm not worried. Like I'm more worried about like, I can't just keep doing it. I, I went to Colorado too and did some shows in October and I headlined and I was doing fine. It was like an hour outside of Denver. So it was like a really like young, but conservative, like they all got married and had kids super young crowd. Mm-hmm. And I was just shocking them because I've changed so much in the last two years. And the first year I was like getting sober and I wrote some new stuff. But then this last year, like I wrote some COVID jo- I was, we were all still kind of writing last spring, I feel like. And now I just haven't been regularly performing and haven't been regularly writing new jokes. And I'm like listening to myself tell all these like crazy stories of a person I no longer am. And I was like, holy fuck, like it just really messed me up. Mm -hmm. Like it's like the set was going fine, but it didn't feel authentic anymore. So I know it's time to like write about who that I am now. It almost felt like I was sharing in a 12 step meeting and I forgot to talk about getting sober, like where I just talked about what it was like and not what happened and what it's like now. Yeah. So that's weird. I was like, I was offered to do an album like before the pandemic and I almost mm-hmm. wish I had now. Cause then I could have just burnt all that. that. Right. Yeah. Like, it's like, but then once I start adding in like some new stuff that balances it, it's not like, Oh, I don't want to do any of that material. It's that I'm not, I don't feel like I'm telling a complete story when I'm only doing that old stuff about what it used to be like, you know, and all of a sudden that stuff becomes part of a complete story. Once I have stuff about, cause I'm still a strange neurotic person just because it's not involving like drugs and alcohol and, and sex with inappropriate people doesn't mean that I'm like a Buddha on a mountain, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still weird. And now I know so much more different weird stuff about me. And I'm willing to admit more weird, different stuff, like how sometimes I get afraid I'm going to throw my dog out of the car. Yeah, that's, that's the OCD. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't yeah. even know it was OCD. but I didn't is, know that fell under that category either. I learned it in a book I read this year, and I was like, holy shit, like, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But that's why it's so weird to me when, like, John Mulaney went to rehab and people were like, I wish, I wish him a speedy recovery. Like, that's, no, that's not, he didn't break a bone. Like, he has yeah. a a progressive and fatal disease. Like it's not speedy is not authentic Mm. recovery. Like it took me two years to figure out I had a form of OCD. Like that recovery should be slow. Yeah. It should be an appropriate amount of time for them to get the real help that they need. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, we have reached the end of the episode here. And um, I do want to mention though, before we create something together, that you have a podcast called, comics book club yeah i oh. interview mostly authors lately about books that they've written mm-hmm. um sometimes comics or musicians or other artists about just books that they love but i've had some i've had doug stanhope on arden marine guy branham sarah benicasa a lot of comics who are authors that's my target demo for a guest and i have a co-host now her name's molly sanchez and we we are having uh, fun with it. We put out two episodes a month it's on iTunes, Spotify, and uh, Libsyn. Awesome. And uh, people can uh, check that out in those areas. Well, let's mm-hmm. create something together. And I'm interested in this topic of being vulnerable in your in your comedy. I, I think it is the very common 
characteristic that I see in stand-up and good stand-up. But a lot of people, a lot of uh, open micers and, and maybe people uh, just starting out are obviously very afraid to get vulnerable. That's a scary thing. Maybe we can talk through how somebody can get vulnerable with themselves. Is there a process that people can take for that? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's easy. Just like, what do I not want people to know? <laughs> and let's talk about it. Like, what am I, what am I afraid? What is the definition of vulnerability? Like mm-hmm. something that I'm afraid makes me open to being hurt, you know, which mm-hmm. in polite society is just judged or not approved of. Mm-hmm. So the first, so like, here's how you take a bit, like you have an idea, right? So I'm going to write, I haven't written it all yet, but I've been thinking about, I, uh, I had a client, um, I do sensual massage that was a QAnon dude. And because of that, like I was, he was like spouting off, people are particularly obsessed with like Ellen DeGeneres eating drinking baby's blood, which is insane because Ellen has never been attractive. That's like, nobody cares about how old Ellen is. Ellen doesn't care. She's rich and powerful and funny. That's why people fuck Ellen. That's why people date Ellen. Like nobody's ever been like, Oh, her youthful looks like she would not (laughs) baby's blood is not where she's spending her money. But anyways, so I was like, Oh, this guy will believe anything. So I made him take pictures for my OnlyFans because I was like, you're so hot. And I just want to have these later. So I knew I'm like, that was funny. The idea that somebody that believes in QAnon would believe in anything. And then I could go sell photos of us together on my OnlyFans. Mm-hmm. That's not super vulnerable. It is a little bit because you're like, oh, OnlyFans, oh, <laughs> sex work, you know, but not super vulnerable. Most sex working comedians will make it their whole act. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's not the most interesting thing about me. But from there, I'm like, well, I also have an uncle that believes in QAnon. That's more vulnerable because that's my family. Right. And we'll go to there. We'll talk about how he uh, he uh, is so pro-life that he believes Joe Biden is psych- sacrificing babies to uh, demonic gods. And then we could talk about how my five-year-old cousin understands that demonic gods is an oxymoron. Okay. So we'll go. For, we'll get a little more vulnerable. Um, and I can talk about here. Here's where it really gets vulnerable. For about a day last spring, I got into QAnon and I had a booker sending me these videos and I was like, and my favorite YouTuber, I lost him to QAnon too. Mm-hmm. He used to be like, I'm here to expand your consciousness. And then he started being like, there's something going on with kids and you know, there's more going the elites. And I was like, fuck, you're gone, Aaron. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I started being like, well, maybe this COVID thing is a distraction from some underground thing. And I was fully willing to believe that celebs drank baby's blood. Where they lost me was when they started to talk about Donald Trump doing something good for the country. Without bragging about it. <laughs> yeah, the last thing I heard was uh, that Donald Trump is still really the president. And uh, that it's just for the corporate world that Biden is the president. But anything good that happens it's it's really trump's doing uh under the radar you would never do anything good without bragging about it so that <laughs> oh, yeah. um so that would be how i would start i'd be like i want to talk about QAnon, 
And what I'm happy to talk about is say maybe the easiest, least vulnerable part is actually when I look at it all written out, I'm like actually would be my uncle. But then I get a little more vulnerable and talking about sex work, but I'm still, we're still laughing at this guy, you know? And then the part, if I didn't want to get into the vulnerability, I'd be like, well, I'm never going to tell anybody that for a day I was excited about QAnon. (laughs) But if I want to be funny, (laughs) really funny, then I will squash my ego for my art. And that makes it to me. Now I've got a full story. Okay. And when it comes to sharing that, obviously, you know, everyone can knows how they have a topic in their head when they they hear us talking about this and they're thinking, oh, here's the thing I wouldn't want anyone to know about. Um, but when it comes to actually getting on stage and talking about it, is that something that comes easy for you or there's some sort of, uh, do you have to psych yourself up to get into the material? Like what gets you actually comfortable talking about it in front of a crowd of strangers? You know, it's, it really comes down to my perception of the room and my own mental state at the time. Cause like sometimes I'm in a place where I'm like, I don't care. I used to dissociate sometimes like before I got on stage. And then I just, you know, when you, whatever you do, the audience does like energetically, even if it's comics. And when I don't, care or I feel if I'm in a room where I, I feel that the host or producer knows me and knows that I am funny, then I'll be funnier. And so I have to find that inside of myself. If like sometimes, and I don't know if anyone can relate to this and it's completely arbitrarily, I'll just decide that someone doesn't think I'm funny. And that's always when I'm going to fuck up. Mm. Um, and it's like, why am I even on their show then? Like I've decided this host doesn't, this producer doesn't like me. And then why the fuck am I on the show? Why would they ask you? Yeah. Right. Or maybe I ask them and then I feel insecure. Like I don't deserve it or I wish they had asked whatever. I get all up in my head and I dissociate, but um, it's just a comfortability and comfortability starts inside the self, but there's definitely things that help. You know, like that's my friend. Like it doesn't matter. Once it doesn't matter if I do badly, I'm free to do better. Mm, I love that. There it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Rebecca. Well, thank you for having me. We were thrilled to have her. I really appreciate her willingness to be so open and honest. Big thanks to her for sharing her time and thoughts with us. You can hear her thoughts regularly on her podcast, Comics Book Club, and go to her website, RebeccaRushComedy.com. Also, check out her Vulnerability Show, a show she does the first Tuesday of the month. So tonight at 6 p.m. Pacific, follow at Vulnerability Show on Facebook to find the Zoom link for the show. Follow at RebeccaRush639 on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ThereItIsPod. Also, subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to ThereItIsPod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 